The Sovereignty of God by A.W. Pink The Sovereignty of God in Reprobation Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God, Romans 11.22 In the last chapter, when treating of the sovereignty of God, the Father, and salvation, we examine seven passages which represent him as making a choice from among the children of men and predestinating certain ones to be conformed to the image of his Son. The thoughtful reader will naturally ask, And what are those who are not ordained to eternal life? The answer which is usually returned to this question, even by those who profess to believe what the Scriptures teach concerning God's sovereignty is, that God passes by the non-elect, leaves them alone to go their own way, and in the end casts them into the lake of fire because they refused His way and rejected the Savior of His providing. But this is only a part of the truth. The other part, that which is most offensive to the carnal mind, is either ignored or denied. In view of the awful solemnity of the subject here before us, in view of the fact that today almost all, even those who profess to be Calvinists, reject and repudiate this doctrine, and in view of the fact that this is one of the points in our book which is likely to raise the most controversy, we feel that an extended inquiry into this aspect of God's truth is demanded, that this branch of the subject of God's sovereignty is profoundly mysterious, we freely allow. Yet, that is no reason why we should reject it. The trouble is that, nowadays, there are so many who receive the testimony of God, only so far as they can satisfactorily account for all the reasons and grounds of his conduct which means they will accept nothing but that which can be measured in the petty scales of their own limited capacities. Stating it in its baldest form, the point now to be considered is, has God foreordained certain ones to damnation? That many will be eternally damned is clear from Scripture, that each one will be judged according to his works and reap as he is sown, and that in consequence his damnation is just. Romans 3 verse 8 is equally sure, and that God decreed that the non-elect should choose a course they follow, we now undertake to prove. From what has been before us in a previous chapter concerning the election of some to salvation, it would unavoidably follow, even if Scripture had been silent upon it, that there must be a rejection of others. Every choice evidently and necessarily implies a refusal, for where there is no leaving out, there can be no choice. If there be some whom God has elected to salvation, Second Thessalonians 2 verse 13, there must be others who are not elected to salvation. If there are some that the Father gave to Christ, John 6 verse 37, there must be others whom he did not give to Christ. If there be some whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, Revelation 21 27, there must be others whose names are not written there. That this is the case we shall fully prove below. Now, all will acknowledge that from the foundation of the world God certainly foreknew and foresaw who would and who would not receive Christ as their Savior. Therefore, in giving being and birth to those he knew would reject Christ, he necessarily created them to damnation. All that can be said in reply to this is, No, while God did foreknow those who would reject Christ, yet he did not decree that they should. But this is a begging of the real question at issue. God had a definite reason why he created men, a specific purpose why he created this and that individual, 
and in view of the eternal destination of its creatures, he purposed either that this one should spend eternity in heaven or that this one should spend eternity in the lake of fire. If then he foresaw that in creating a certain person that that person would despise and reject the Savior, yet, knowing this beforehand, he nevertheless brought that person into existence, then it is clear he designed and ordained that that person should be eternally lost. Again, faith is God's gift, and a purpose to give it only to some involves a purpose not to give it to others. Without faith, there is no salvation. He that believes not shall be damned. Hence, if there were some of Adam's descendants to whom he purposed not to give faith, it must be because he ordained that they should be damned. Not only is there no escape from these conclusions, but history confirms them. Before the divine incarnation, for almost 2,000 years, the vast majority of mankind were left destitute of even the external means of grace, being favored with no preaching of God's word and with no written revelation of his will. For many long centuries, Israel was the only nation to whom the deity vouchsafed any special discovery of himself, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways, Acts 14, verse 16. You only, Israel, have I known of all the families of the earth, Amos 3, verse 2. Consequently, as all other nations were deprived of the preaching of God's word, they were strangers to the faith that comes by it. Romans 10, verse 17. These nations were not only ignorant of God himself, but of the way to please him, of the true manner of acceptance with him, and a means of arriving at the everlasting enjoyment of himself. Now, if God had willed their salvation, Would he not have vouchsafed them the means of salvation? Would he not have given them all things necessary to that end? But it is an undeniable matter of fact that he did not. If then deity can consistently with his justice, mercy, and benevolence deny to some the means of grace, shut them up in gross darkness and unbelief because of the sins of their forefathers generations before, Why should it be deemed incompatible with its perfections to exclude some persons, many, from grace itself, and from that eternal life which is connected with it, seeing that he is Lord and sovereign disposer, both of the end to which the means lead, and the means which lead to that end? Coming down to our own day, and to those in our own country, leaving out the almost innumerable crowds of unevangelized heathen, Is it not evident that there are many living in lands where the gospel is preached, lands which are full of churches, who die strangers to God and His holiness? True, the means of grace were close to their hand, but many of them knew it not. Thousands are born into homes where they are taught from infancy to regard all Christians as hypocrites and preachers as arch humbugs. Others are instructed from the cradle in Roman Catholicism trained to regard evangelical Christianity as deadly heresy, and the Bible is a book highly dangerous for them to read. Others, reared in Christian science, families, know no more of the true gospel of Christ than do the unevangelized heathen. The great majority of these die in utter ignorance of the way of peace. Now are we not obliged to conclude that it was not God's will to communicate grace to them? 
and as well been otherwise, would he not have actually communicated his grace to them? If then it was the will of God in time to refuse to them his grace, it must have been his will from all eternity, since his will is as himself the same yesterday and today and forever. Let it not be forgotten that God's providences are but the manifestation of his decrees. What God does in time is only what he purposed in eternity, his own will being the alone cause of all of his acts and works. Therefore, from his actually leaving some men in final impenitency and unbelief, we assuredly gather it was his everlasting determination so to do, and consequently that he reprobated some from before the foundation of the world. In a Westminster Confession it is said, God, from all eternity, did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably foreordain whatsoever comes to pass. The late Mr. F. W. Grant, 1902, a most careful and cautious student and writer, commenting on these words says, quote, It is perfectly divinely true that God has ordained for his own glory whatsoever comes to pass. End quote. Now, if these statements are true, is not the doctrine of reprobation established by them? What in human history is the one thing which does come to pass every day? What? But that men and women die, pass out of the world into a hopeless eternity, an eternity of suffering and woe. If then God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass, then he must have decreed that vast numbers of human beings should pass out of this world unsaved, to suffer eternally in the lake of fire. Admitting the general premise, is not the specific conclusion inevitable? In reply to the preceding paragraphs, a reader may say, All oh, this is simple reasoning, logical no doubt, but yet mere inferences. Very well, we will now point out that in addition to the above conclusions, there are many passages in Holy Writ which are most clear and definite in their teaching on this solemn subject. Passages which are too plain to be misunderstood and too strong to be evaded. The marvel is that so many good men have denied their undeniable affirmations. Joshua made a war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel save the Hivites and the inhabitants of Gibeon. All other they took in battle, for it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might destroy them utterly and that they might have no favor, but that he might destroy them as the Lord commanded Moses, Joshua 11, verses 18 to 20. What could be plainer than this? Here was a large number of Canaanites whose hearts the Lord hardened, whom he had purposed to utterly destroy, to whom he showed no favor. Granted that they were wicked, immoral, idolatrous, were they any worse than the immoral, idolatrous cannibals of the South Sea Islands and many other places to whom God gave the gospel through John, Aten? Assuredly not. Then why did not Jehovah command Israel to teach the Canaanites his laws and instruct them concerning sacrifices to the true God? Plainly, because he had marked them out for destruction. And if he did so, he did it from all eternity. Proverbs 16, verse 4, The Lord has made all things for himself, even the wicked for the day of evil, that the Lord made all, 
perhaps every reader of this book will allow, that he made all for himself as not so widely believed, that God made us not for our own sakes but for himself, not for our own happiness but for his glory, is nevertheless repeatedly affirmed in Scripture. Revelation 4 verse 11 But Proverbs 16.4 goes even further. It expressly declares that the Lord made the wicked for the day of evil. That was his design in giving them being. But why? Does not Romans 9 verse 17 tell us? For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for the same purpose have I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. God has made the wicked that, at the end, he may demonstrate his power, demonstrated by showing what an easy manner it is for him to subdue the stoutest rebel and to overthrow his mightiest enemy. Matthew 7, verse 23, And then I will profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. In the previous chapter, it has been shown that the words know and foreknowledge when applied to God in the scriptures, have reference not simply to his prescience, i.e. his bare knowledge beforehand, but to his knowledge of approbation. When God said to Israel, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, it is evident that he meant, You only had I any favorable regard to. When we read in Romans 11:2, God has not cast away his people, Israel, which he foreknew, it is obvious that what was signified is, God has not finally rejected that people whom he has chosen as the objects of his love. Consider further Deuteronomy 7 verse 8. In the same way, and it is the only possible way, are we to understand Matthew 7 verse 23. In the day of judgment, the Lord will say to many, I never knew you. Note, it is more than simply, I know you not. His solemn declaration will be, I never knew you. You were never the objects of my approval. Contrast this with, I know, love, my sheep, and am known, or loved, of mine, John 10 verse 14. The sheep, his elect, the few, he does know, but the reprobate, the non-elect, the many, he knows not, no, not even before the foundation of the world did he know them. He never knew them. In Romans 9, the doctrine of God's sovereignty and its application to both the elect and the reprobate is treated of at length. A detailed exposition of this important chapter would be beyond our present scope. All that we can say is to dwell upon the part of it, which mostly clearly bears upon the aspect of the subject which we are now considering. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, even for the same purpose have I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. These words refer us back to verses 13 and 14. In verse 13, God's love to Jacob and his hatred to Esau are declared. In verse 14, it is asked, is there unrighteousness with God? And here in verse 17, the apostle continues his reply to the objection. We cannot do better now than quote from John Calvin's comments upon this verse, quote, 
There are here two things to be considered. The predestination of Pharaoh to ruin, which is to be referred to the past, and yet the hidden counsel of God, and then the design of this, which was to make known the name of God. As many interpreters striving to modify this passage pervert it, we must observe that for the word I have raised you up, or stirred up in the Hebrew, is I have appointed, by which it appears that God's design in the show that the contumacy of Pharaoh would not prevent him to deliver his people, not only affirms that his fury had been foreseen by him, and that he had prepared means for restraining it, but that he also thus designedly ordained it and indeed for this end, that he might exhibit a more illustrious evidence of his own power, in quote. It will be observed that John Calvin gives as a force of the Hebrew word, which Paul renders, for this cause have I raised you up. I have appointed. As this is a word on which the doctrine and argument of the verse turns, we would further point out that in making this quotation from Exodus 9.16, the apostle significantly departs from the Septuagint, the version then in common use, and from which he most frequently quotes, and substitutes a clause for the verse that is given by the Septuagint. Instead of, on this account, you have been preserved, he gives, for this very end have I raised you up. But we must now consider in more detail the case of Pharaoh, which sums up in concrete example the great controversy between man and his maker. For now I will stretch out my hand, that I might smite you and your people with pestilence, and you shall be cut off from the earth. And in very deed for this cause have I raised you up, for to show in you my power, that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. Exodus nine fifteen and 16. Upon these words we offer the following comments. First, we know from Exodus 14 and 15 that Pharaoh was cut off, that he was cut off by God, that he was cut off in the very midst of his wickedness, that he was cut off not by sickness, nor by the infirmities which are incident to old age, nor by what men term an accident, but cut off by the immediate hand of God in judgment. Second, it is clear that God raised up Pharaoh for this very end, to cut him off, which in the language of the New Testament means destroyed. God never does anything without a previous design, and given him being, and preserving him through infancy and childhood, and raising him up to the throne of Egypt, God had one end in view, that such was God's purpose is clear from his words to Moses before he went down to Egypt to demand of Pharaoh that Jehovah's people should be allowed to go a three days journey into the wilderness to worship him. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go to return into Egypt, see that you do all these wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand. But I will harden his heart, that he shall not let the people go. Exodus 4.21 but, not only so, God's design and purpose was declared long before this. Four hundred years previously, God had said to Abraham, Know of a surety that your seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. 
and also that nation whom they shall serve, will I judge. Genesis 15 verses 13 and 14. From these words it is evident, a nation and its king being looked at as one in the Old Testament, to God's purpose was formed long before he gave Pharaoh a being. Third, an examination of God's dealings with Pharaoh makes it clear that Egypt's king was indeed a vessel of wrath, fitted to destruction, placed on Egypt's throne, with the reins of government in his hands. He sat as head of the nation which occupied the first rank among the peoples of the world. There was no other monarch on earth able to control or dictate to Pharaoh. To such a dizzy height did God raise this reprobate, and such a course was a natural and necessary step to prepare him for his final fate. For it is a divine axiom that pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall, Proverbs 16.18. Further, and this is deeply important to note and highly significant, God removed from Pharaoh the one outward restraint which was calculated to act as a check upon him, the bestowing upon Pharaoh of the unlimited powers of a king was setting him above all legal influence and control. But besides this, God removed Moses from his presence and kingdom. Had Moses, who not only was skilled in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, but also had been reared in Pharaoh's household, been allowed to remain in close proximity to the throne, There can be no doubt but that his example and influence had been a powerful check upon the king's wickedness and tyranny. This, though not the only cause, was plainly one reason why God sent Moses into Midian, for it was during his absence that Egypt's inhuman king framed his most cruel edicts. God designed by removing this restraint to give Pharaoh full opportunity to fill up the full measure of his sins, and ripen him for his fully deserved but predestined ruined. Fourth, God hearted his heart as he declared he would, Exodus 4 verse 21. This is in full accord with the declarations of Holy Scripture, the preparations of the heart in man, and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord, Proverbs 16, 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, as a river's of water he turns it whithersoever he will. Proverbs 21, 1. Like all other kings, Pharaoh's heart was in the hand of the Lord, and God had both a right and power to turn it wherever he pleased. And it pleased him to turn it against all good. God determined to hinder Pharaoh from granting his request through Moses to let Israel go until he had fully prepared him for his final overthrow. And because nothing short of this would fully fit him, God hardened his heart. Finally, it is worthy of careful consideration to know how the vindication of God in his dealings with Pharaoh has been fully attested. Most remarkable is it to discover that we have Pharaoh's own testimony in favor of God and against himself. In Exodus 9, 15 and 16, We learn how God had told Pharaoh for what purpose he had raised him up. And in verse 27 of the same chapter, we are told that Pharaoh said, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous, and I and my people are wicked. Mark, 
Did this was said by Pharaoh after he knew that God had raised him up in order to cut him off, after his severe judgments had been sent upon him, after he had hardened his own heart. By this time Pharaoh was fairly ripened for judgment, and fully prepared to decide whether God had injured him, or whether he had sought to injure God, and he fully acknowledged that he had sinned, and that God was righteous. Again we have the witness of Moses who was fully acquainted with God's conduct toward Pharaoh. He had heard at the beginning what was God's design in connection with Pharaoh. He had witnessed God's dealings with him. He had observed his long-suffering towards this vessel of wrath fitted to destruction. And at last he had beheld him cut off in divine judgment at the Red Sea. How then was Moses impressed? Does he raise a cry of injustice? Does he dare to charge God with unrighteousness? Far from it. Instead, he says, Who is like unto you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Exodus 15:11. Was Moses moved by a vindictive spirit as he saw Israel's arch enemy cut off by the waters of the Red Sea? Surely not. But to remove forever all doubt upon the score, it remains to be pointed out how that saints in heaven after they have witnessed the sore judgments of God, join in singing the song of Moses, a servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, you King of Saints. Revelation 15.3 Here then is the climax, and the full and final vindication of God's dealings with Pharaoh. Saints in heaven join in singing the song to Moses, in which the servant of God celebrated Jehovah's praise and overthrowing Pharaoh and his hosts, declaring that in so acting God was not unrighteous but just and true. We must believe, therefore, that the judge of all the earth did right in creating and destroying its vessel of wrath, Pharaoh. The case of Pharaoh establishes a principle and illustrates the doctrine of reprobation. If God actually reprobated Pharaoh, we may justly conclude that he reprobates all others whom he did not predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. This inference the Apostle Paul manifestly draws from the fate of Pharaoh. For in Romans 9, after referring to God's purpose and raising up Pharaoh, he continues, Therefore, the case of Pharaoh is introduced to prove the doctrine of reprobation as a counterpart of the doctrine of election. In conclusion, we would say that in forming Pharaoh, God displayed neither justice nor injustice, but only his bare sovereignty. As a potter is sovereign in forming vessels, so God is sovereign in forming moral agents. Verse 18. Therefore has he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will. He hardens. The therefore announces a general conclusion which the apostle draws from all he had just said in the three preceding verses, in denying that God was unrighteous in loving Jacob and hating Esau. And specifically it applies a principle exemplified in God's dealings with Pharaoh. It traces everything back to the sovereign will of the Creator. He loves one and hates another. He exercises mercy towards some and hardens others without reference to anything save his own sovereign will. That which is most repulsive to the carnal mind in the above verse 
is a reference to hardening whom he will. He hardens, and it is just here that so many commentators and expositors have adulterated the truth. The common view is that the apostle is speaking of nothing more than judicial hardening, in other words, a forsaken by God, because the subjects of his displeasure had first rejected his truth and forsaken him. Those who contend for this interpretation appeal to such scriptures as Romans 1, verses 19 to 26. God gave them up. That is, the context. Those who knew God yet glorified him not as God, verse 21. Appeal is also made to 2 Thessalonians 10, verses 10 to 12. But it is to be noted that the word hardened does not occur in either of these passages. But further, we submit that Romans 9 verse 18 has no reference whatever to judicial hardening. The apostle is not there speaking of those who had already turned their back on God's truth, but instead he is dealing with God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty is seen not only in showing mercy to whom he wills, but also in hardening whom he pleases. The exact words are whom he will, not all who have rejected his truth, he hardens, and is coming immediately after the mention of Pharaoh clearly fixes their meaning. The case of Pharaoh is plain enough, though man by his glosses has done his best to hide the truth. Verse 18. Therefore has he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will, he hardens. This affirmation of God's sovereignty and hardening of sinners' hearts in contradistinction from judicial hardening is not alone. Mark the language of John 12, verses 37 to 40. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him, that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. Why? Because that Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Why? Because they had refused to believe on Christ? This is a popular belief. But mark the answer of Scripture. That they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. Now, reader, it is just a question as to whether or not you will believe what God has revealed in his word. It is not a manner of prolonged searching or profound study, but a childlike spirit which is needed in order to understand this doctrine. Verse 19, You will say then unto me, Why does he yet find fault? For who has resisted his will? Is not this a very objection which is urged today? The force of the apostles' questions here seem to be this, since everything is dependent on God's will, which is irreversible. And since this will of God, according to what he can do, everything is sovereign, since he can have mercy on whom he wills to have mercy, and can refuse mercy and inflict punishment on whom he chooses to do so, why does he not will to have mercy on all, so as to make them obedient, and thus put finding a fault out of court? Now it should be particularly noted that the apostle does not repudiate the ground on which the objection rests. He does not say, God does not find fault, nor does he say, man may resist his will. Furthermore, it does not explain away the objection by saying, 
You have altogether misapprehended my meaning when I said, Whom he will, he treats kindly, and whom he will, he treats severely. But he says, First, this is an objection you have no right to make. And then, this is an objection you have no reason to make. The objection was utterly inadmissible, for it was a replying against God. It was to complain about, argue against, what God had done. Verse 19, you will say then to me, why does he yet find fault for who has resisted his will? The language which the apostle here puts into the mouth of the objector is so plain and pointed, the misunderstanding ought to be impossible. Why does he yet find fault? Now, reader, what can these words mean? Formulate your own reply before considering ours. Can the force of the apostle's question be any other than this? If it is true that God has mercy on whom he wills, and also hardens whom he wills, then what becomes of human responsibility? In such a case, men are nothing but puppets. And if this be true, then it would be unjust for God to find fault with his helpless creatures. Mark the word, then. You will say, then unto me. He states the false inference or conclusion which the objector draws from what the apostle had been saying. And Mark, my reader, the apostle readily saw the doctrine he had formulated would raise this very objection, unless what we have written throughout this book provokes some at least, all whose carnal minds are not subdued by divine grace, the same objection then it must be either because we have not presented the doctrine which is set forth in Romans 9, or else because human nature has changed since the Apostle's day? Consider now the remainder of the verse. The Apostle repeats the same objection in a slightly different form, repeats it so that this meaning may not be misunderstood, namely, for who has resisted his will. It is clear, then, that the subject under immediate discussion relates to God's will, i.e. his sovereign ways, which confirms what we have said above upon verses 17 and 18, where we contended that it is not judicial hardening which is in view, that is hardening because of previous rejection of the truth, but sovereign hardening, that is the hardening of a fallen and sinful creature for no other reason than that which inheres in the sovereign will of God. And hence the question, who has resisted his will? What then does the apostle say in reply to these objections? Verse 20. Nay, but, O man, who are you that reply against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why have you made me thus? The apostle then did not say the objection was pointless and groundless, Instead, he rebukes the objector for his impiety. He reminds him that he is merely a man, a creature, and that as such it is most unseemly and impertinent for him to reply, argue, or reason against God. Furthermore, he reminds him that he is nothing more than a thing formed, and therefore it is madness and blasphemy to rise up against a former himself. Ere leaving this verse, it should be pointed out that his closing words, Why have you made me thus? Help us to determine unmistakably the precise subject under discussion. 
In the light of the immediate context, what can be the force of the, thus, what? But as in the case of Esau, why have you made me an object of hatred? What? But as in the case of Pharaoh, why have you made me simply to harden me? What other meaning can fairly be assigned to it? It is highly important to keep clear before us that the Apostle's object throughout this passage is to treat of God's sovereignty in dealing with, on the one hand, those whom he loves, vessels to honor and vessels of mercy, and also, on the other hand, with those whom he hates and hardens, vessels to dishonor and vessels of wrath. Verses 21 to 23 Is not the potter power over the clay of the same lump? to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath, and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared to glory? In these verses the apostle furnishes a full and final reply to the objections raised in verse 19. First, he asks, Has not the potter power over the clay? And so on. It is to be noted that the word here translated power is a different one in the Greek from the one rendered power in verse 22, where it can only signify his might. But here in verse 21, the power spoken of must refer to the Creator's rights or sovereign prerogatives that this is so appears from the fact that the same Greek word is employed in John 1 verse 12. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, which, as is well known, means a right or privilege to become the sons of God. The revised version employs right, both in John 1 12 and Romans 9 21. Verse 21. Is not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel to honor and another to dishonor? That the potter here is God himself is certain from the previous verse, where the apostle asks, Who are you that replies against God? And then, speaking in the terms of the figure he was about to use, con continues, Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it? And so on. Some there are who would rob these words of their force by arguing that while the human potter makes certain vessels to be used for less honorable purposes than others, nevertheless they are designed to fill some useful place. But the apostle does not here say, Has not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel to an honorable use and another to a less honorable use? But he speaks of some vessels being made unto dishonor. It is true, of course, that God's wisdom will yet be fully vindicated, inasmuch as the destruction of the reprobate will promote his glory. In what way the next verse tells us. Ere passing to the next verse, let us summarize the teaching of this and the two previous ones. In verse 19, two questions are asked. You will say then to me, Why does he yet find fault? For who has resisted his will? To those questions a threefold answer is returned. First, in verse 20, 
The apostle denies the creature the right to sit in judgment upon the ways of the Creator. Nay, but, O man, who are you that replies against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why have you made me thus? The apostle insists that the rectitude of God's will must not be questioned. Whatever he does must be right. Second, in verse 21, the apostle declares that the Creator has a right to dispose of his creature as he sees fit. Is not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel to honor and another to dishonor? It should be carefully noted that the word for power here is exosia, an entirely different word from the one translated power in the following verse, to make known his power, where it is duaton. In the words, has not the potter power over the clay? It must be God's power justly exercised, which is in view, the exercise of God's right consistently with his justice, because a mere assertion of his omnipotency would be no such answer as God would return to the questions asked in verse 19. Third, in verses 22 to 23, the apostle gives a reason why God proceeds differently with one of its creatures from another. On the one hand, it is to show his wrath and to make his power known. On the other hand, it is to make known the riches of its glory. Is not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto death's honor? Certainly God has a right to do this because he is the creator. Does he exercise this right? Yes, as verses 13 and 17 clearly show us. For the same purpose I've raised you up, Pharaoh. Verse 22, what if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? Here the apostle tells us as in a second place why God acts thus i.e. differently, with different ones, having mercy on some and hardening others, making one vessel to honor and another unto dishonor. Observe that here in verse 22 the apostle first mentions vessels of wrath, before he refers in verse 23 to the vessels of mercy. Why is this? The answer to this question is of first importance, we reply, because it is the vessels of wrath or the subjects in view before the objector in verse 19. Two reasons are given why God makes some vessels unto dishonor. First, to show his wrath, and secondly, to make his power known, both of which were exemplified in the case of Pharaoh. One point in the above verse requires separate consideration. Vessels of wrath fitted to destruction the usual explanation which is given of these words is that vessels of wrath fit themselves to destruction, that is, fit themselves by virtue of their wickedness, and it is argued that there is no need for God to fit them to destruction, because they are already fitted by their own depravity, and this must be the real meaning of this expression. Now, if by destruction we understand punishment, it is perfectly true that the non-elect do fit themselves for everyone will be judged according to his works. And further, we freely grant that subjectively the non-elect do fit themselves for destruction. But the point to be decided is, is this what the apostle here is referring to? 
and without hesitation we reply, It is not. Go back to verses 11 to 13. Did Esau fit himself to be an object of God's hatred? Or was he not such before he was born? Again, did Pharaoh fit himself for destruction? Or did not God harden his heart before the plagues were sent upon Egypt? Exodus 4.21 Romans 9.22 is clearly a continuation and thought of verse 21. And verse 21 is part of the apostles' reply to the question raised in verse 20. Therefore, to fairly follow out the figure, it must be God himself who fits to destruction the vessels of wrath. Should it be asked how God does this, the answer necessarily is objectively. He fits the non-elect to destruction by his foreordinating decrees. Should it be asked why does God do this, the answer must be to promote his own glory, the glory of his justice, power, and wrath. The sum of the apostles' answer here is that the grand object of God, both in the election and the reprobation of men, is that which is paramount to all things else in the creation of men, namely his own glory, end quote. Robert Haldane, 1842, verse 23, And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared to glory. The only point in this verse which demands attention is the fact that the vessels of mercy are here said to be before prepared to glory. Many have pointed out that the previous verse does not say the vessels of wrath were afore prepared to destruction, and from this omission they have concluded that we must understand the reference there to the non-elect fitting themselves in time rather than God ordaining them for destruction from all eternity. But this conclusion by no means follows. We need to look back to verse 21 and note the figure which is there employed. Clay is an animate manner, corrupt, decomposed, and therefore a fit substance to represent fallen humanity. As in the apostle is contemplating God's sovereign dealings with humanity, in view of the fall, he does not say the vessels of wrath were afford prepared to destruction for the obvious and sufficient reason that it was not until after the fall that they became in themselves what is here symbolized by the clay. All that is necessary to refute the erroneous conclusion referred to above is to point out that what is said of the vessels of wrath is not that they are fit for destruction, which is a word that would have been used if the reference had been to them fitting themselves by their own wickedness, but fitted to destruction, which in the light of the whole context must mean a sovereign ordination to destruction by the Creator. We quote here the pointed words of John Calvin on this passage, quote, There are vessels prepared for destruction, that is, given up and appointed to destruction. They are also vessels of wrath, that is, made in form for this end, that they may be examples of God's vengeance and displeasure. Though in the second clause the apostle asserts more expressly that it is God who prepared the elect for glory, as he has simply said before that the reprobate are vessels prepared for destruction, there is yet no doubt but that the preparation of both is connected with the secret counsel of God. Paul might have otherwise said that the reprobate gave up or cast themselves into destruction, but he intimates here that before they are born, 
they're destined to their lot, end quote. With this, we are in hearty accord. Romans 9.22 does not say the vessels of wrath fitted themselves, nor does it say they are fit for destruction. Instead, it declares they are fitted to destruction. The context shows plainly it is God who thus fits them, objectively, by his eternal decrees.